Well, we come now to our third lesson as it pertains to the doctrine of God's providence. Over the last few weeks, we've taken time to really lay the groundwork and lay the foundation as it pertains to the providence of God. And providentially, couldn't have come at a better time, quite frankly, to really study and understand the providence of God, given the events, obviously, that's taken place over the past week. Now, in laying the foundation, one of the things that we saw was the definition of providence as defined in our confession of faith. We saw that the Westminster Divines, or the teachers, wrote this in chapter 5, section 1. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, goodness, justice, and mercy. In our first lesson, we talked about the importance of this doctrine, why it was that it was necessary to understand that God providentially preserves and governs all creatures and all actions. And if you recall, we mentioned just some of the reasons. One, it helped us to see the big picture in light of our personal circumstances. It gave us a reason to pray to God. It gave us a reason to walk by faith and trust in him. And in last Lord's Day, we saw that not only was understanding God's providence important regarding those areas, but in particular regarding our redemption. We saw how throughout, from the Old Testament to the New, how God's hand was ensuring that Christ came as he promised. We saw the uniqueness of the birth of Jesus and how it could not have happened um, any, way, any way else except the way that it did by the sovereign hand of God, and how everything, including Caesar Augustus coming to the throne, being as such for the very purpose of ensuring that Christ came as he did. Then we talked about ordinary providence and special providence, two aspects as it pertains to the overarching understanding of God's providence. And in particular, we talked about how ordinary providence was necessary for special providence to take place, and then we ended last week by talking about misapplications of the doctrine of providence, in particular, how many people will take this understanding of God's providence and come up with misapplications, things such as laziness, not sharing the gospel, being reckless, being irresponsible, and presumption. And we talked about how that came about from seeing God's hand over everything, but ignoring God's requirements for us, our duties that we ought to have in light of God's providence. So that's what we've covered thus far. Over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to really dive into the different elements as it pertains to God's providence. And by that, so there are three elements, and each week we'll dive into uh, um, one of these elements or aspects. God's divine preservation, God's divine government, and God's divine concurrence. Now, although for the purposes of clarification and understanding, we separate God's providences into those three elements, I don't want you to think that these elements are somehow separate from one another. In other words, you know, these elements are all interconnected in the overall understanding of God's providence. Each element is just dealing with a different aspect. Divine preservation, for example, deals with the being of all things. God, divine government deals with God's guidance of all things. And divine concurrence deals with God's activity within and of all things. 
All three elements work together to ensure that God's ultimate plan comes together as the creed. Now, as it pertains to divine preservation, were God truly a watchmaker God, then after creating the world, he would have just sat back and let the world just do its own thing. But see, the God that we believe in, the God that the Bible speaks about, is not that type of God. After God executed his work of creation, we see that he continues to be active. Divine preservation deals with his sustaining all things as they are. So a definition of divine preservation would be this. God's continuous work whereby he sustains and upholds all created things. There are two things that I just want you to to, to focus in on in that definition. The first is the fact that divine preservation is God's continuous work. Over and against the understanding that after God created the world, he just sat back and let the world do its thing. God is active in all things, and we will see that. And the second part is that he sustains and upholds all created things, not just some things, but all created things. A couple of verses that highlight God's preservation is this, Acts 17, verses 28. We see it written, for in him, that is God, we live and move and exist. And then we see in Colossians 1, verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And then finally, in Hebrews 1, verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So if you see here in all of these passages, one thing that is made very clear is this, that in him we exist, in him we move, in him all things are held together. So we are dependent upon God. We are not our own. We are fully dependent upon God for us to be here. Now, with all that being said, I want us to do this here. Let us go to the very beginning. Well, not quite the very beginning. A little bit after the very beginning. Right after the flood. Let's go to Genesis 8, verses 22. Because we see in this passage something unique that I think highlights the reality of God's preservation. Genesis chapter eight, verses 22, we read God saying this to Noah. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. After God destroyed the whole world by a flood during the time of Noah, he promises not only to not destroy the earth again by a flood, but also to uphold and preserve nature. See, the fact that we see all of the natural world upheld as it is without random changes in the seasons or days is due to God keeping it that way. The sun will continue to give us light and warmth in the day and the moon and stars will continue to give us light at night is due to God keeping his promise. Our confidence that things won't chaotically change is because because God promises to keep things as such. Now, does that mean that there won't be some periods, some abnormally long periods of heat or cold, for example, such as right after the Genesis flood where... Um, A lot of Christian scientists 
um, jumping off of a biblical worldview, would say we had a brief ice age? Well, no. Or that there won't be places where days are abnormally long or abnormally short. For example, like in Alaska during the summer, where during the summer the sun barely sets and during the winter the sun barely comes up. No. But God is promising that so long as the world is as it is, there will be a night and a day or seasons and harvest. John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis 8.22, puts it in this way. He says this. If it is objected that the equable temperament is not every year perceived, the answer is ready, that the order of the world is indeed disturbed by our vices, so that many of its movements are irregular. Often the sun withholds its proper heat, snow or hail follow in the place of dew, the air is agitated by various tempests. But although the world is not so regulated as to produce perpetual uniformity of seasons, Yet we perceive the order of nature so far to prevail that winter and summer annually recur, that there is a constant succession of days and nights, and that the earth brings forth its fruit in summer and in autumn. So again, even though there might be, as he says, this perpetual uniformity itself, we do see that order throughout. As a matter of fact, even if you lived in Alaska, for example, where, as I mentioned, during the summer, the sun, if it sets, it sets for like two hours or one hour and then comes back up. You would be shocked if in the middle of July, when you're expecting the sun to go down at like two o'clock in the morning, randomly at seven o'clock in the afternoon, the sun were to set. You understand even in that time, in that period, that there is some regularity that is to be anticipated because God promises to keep things in that order. Now, because God has been so faithful, to his word, we all take it for granted. You'll hear many people, for example, talk about the regularity of nature as the laws of nature. Now, based on our understanding of God actively upholding all of nature, I'm not that huge of a fan of looking at the regularity of nature as the laws of nature. Now, to us, they may look as though there is some set natural law, but in reality, it's not a law of nature, but God actively holding things as they are. In fact, if you understand nature as God actively upholding all things together, then supernatural things like miracles start to make a little bit more sense. So when you see either Jesus performing miracles or the prophets, for example, performing miracles, you'll often hear people make arguments that, you know, they're violating natural law. You know, skeptics, for example, will look at miracles with suspicion because those miracles, they would say, would violate natural law or natural phenomenon. And then you'll have some skeptics or even Christians try to explain away miracles in a way that does not violate what they understand of the laws of nature. For example, you see one example that I remember is in regards to the 10 plagues. You know, you hear some people make the argument that, well, if the water did somehow turn to blood from some natural phenomenon or whatnot, then it makes sense that whatever frogs were in the, you know, the Nile River would have come out of the Nile River. And then if the um, frogs died, then it makes sense that there would have been some flies or whatnot that came up. So again, explaining things from a naturalistic standpoint, then from how we understand it from God himself. But if you understand that nature is held together, not through laws, but by God himself, then miracles start to make sense because all God is doing in a miracle is altering how he is choosing to uphold something. So, for example, 
Imagine, and this isn't a perfect example because obviously I'm not God, but imagine that I was holding a ball and turning it clockwise, which I guess if I'm doing it from my vantage point, oh, this would be clockwise, I think, to y'all. So imagine I was turning the ball in this direction, clockwise, and decided to hide myself to where you couldn't see me. All you saw was just the ball moving. Now, if I kept turning the ball clockwise, you may assume that there's some maybe automatic mechanism that's causing the ball to move in that direction. Dare I say, you might even say that there might be some natural law that's causing the ball to move in that direction. Now, if I decided to now turn the ball counterclockwise, you not seeing me may look at the change in amazement. You may try to find some rationale for it. Well, maybe it was the ceiling fan. Maybe that has some impact in regards to the ball. Or maybe the ball just regularly shifts direction. See, in reality, the ball changed directions because I decided to change the ball's direction. I was the one making it move clockwise, and I decided now it was time for it to move counterclockwise. And in the same way, when we see miracles performed in the scripture, I wouldn't look at it as a violation of the laws of nature, but rather God reminding us that he is God and he is the one in control of all nature. And therefore, if he chooses, for example, to split the Red Sea, it is not because he is violating the laws of nature, but rather he decides the sea will be split. Or if he decides for the sun to stand still, it's not because he is violating some law of nature, but because he's God causing the sun to rise and to set, to say, sun, stand still, and it'll stand still. In a future lesson, I'll be spending more time on the topic of miracles. So I'll leave it at that for today. But I just wanted to point that out, really to say why I don't think law of nature, though this is not a hill I'm going to die on, but to use the term law of nature might not be the best way to explain the natural world around us if we believe that God is the one that is upholding all things. Now, continuing in regards to this understanding of God preserving all things, we mentioned how God's preservation of all things was continuous. And then we also saw in the definition that it extends to all things, not just humans, but humans, animals, and all of nature. We see in the verses that I mentioned previously this fact. We see throughout the scriptures from things like our heartbeat to our breath, God being the one upholding that. And a couple examples of this, Job chapter 10, verse 12, in a passage, in a section to where not everything that Job is saying we would necessarily say is accurate per se, there is this moment of clarity in this chapter where he says this in Job 10, verse 12, you have granted me life and loving kindness and your care has preserved my spirit. Who granted him life? It was God who preserved him. It was God. He understood that. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 1 through 5, in the account of Hezekiah, king, we read this. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart, and you have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. 
Who was the one that added life to Hezekiah? God. Why? Because it's God who's the one that grants life and takes life away. And then we see in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25, this truth. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So we as humans, our life comes from God. We are sustained and preserved by him. If God decides that now is our time to go, we go. If God decides we will be preserved, we will be preserved. And as I mentioned, it's not just exclusive to us as humans, but it extends in the animal kingdom as well. In Matthew 10, verse 29, you don't have to go there, but you all know this passage very, very well. The two sparrows that are not sold for a penny, but yet they do not fall apart from the will of God. So even something as insignificant as a sparrow is held by whom? By God himself. And then this preservation extends beyond that to all of nature. We see, for example, in the book of Psalms, chapter 65, verses 9 through 13, this. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. So we see here nature itself being sustained and preserved. By God, we see in Psalm 148, verses 1 through 8, the psalmist here telling us this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. And then finally, we see in the book of Job, going back to Job, in chapter 38, and really and truthfully, Chapters 38 through 41, if you just take the time to read that entire section, you'll see nothing but the providence of God being manifested to humble Job. But we'll just read a couple of verses from Job 38. Verse 12, God asking Job, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? And then we read in verse 22 through 23, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? So again, we see the fact, the reality of God being in control of nature itself. Verses 30, verse 35, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? So again, all of creation, all of nature subservient to 
God itself. So we see in passages like this and a plethora of other passages that God's preservation extends to all things, humans, animals, and nature itself. And if you're asking yourself, well, why? Why is this the case? Well, if you've been following along these past two weeks with me and the last couple of months with Jason, then the answer ought to be obvious. We all know that God has an ultimate end that he is working all things toward. And God upholding all things together is key in ensuring that we, that what he purposed from the beginning comes to pass. Now, to bring this all to a close, as I have stated countless times over the last few weeks, our God, being an active God, does not merely set things in course and then just sit back and relax. He does providentially control all things, and one of the areas in which his providence is manifest is in divine preservation, him preserving all things. Our God is actively sustaining and upholding every single thing that we see around us, from the sun to the air to the birds to the fishes down to you. God in his providence is ensuring that all things are preserved and upheld as he promised he would for his eternal purposes. So that concludes our third lesson on divine preservation.